Once more, would you just join with me in a brief word of prayer? Lord, we thank you for this time to gather and to open your word. We pray that by your grace, you would edify us, encourage us, strengthen us. And Lord, most of all, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. I pray this in your name. Amen. So tonight, we are in Luke chapter 17, and we will be discussing discipleship and all of its quirks. Discipleship and its quirks. Now, when you look at the text of Luke 17, as that was just read aloud, those first 10 verses are often seen as uh, a, a hodgepodge of various teachings that Jesus puts together uh, and that Luke then organizes here for us without much, uh, without much in the way of how do they all piece together? What are they all doing here next to each other in the text? And you might have gotten a sense of that because it doesn't seem very much like for example, the, the teaching on temptation to sin ha, has much to do with, with asking for increased faith or that any of that has much to do with the parable Jesus then tells of the servant and, uh, and what is a likely outcome for him for a faithful day of service. But I think one of the best ways to understand the, the 10 verses before us this evening uh, is to consider them a kind of job description for discipleship. A little bit of what's going on in the text is, is Luke is telling us what it means, what are different assets or different facets uh, of what, what it requires to be a disciple. Much of discipleship has been defined elsewhere in Luke's gospel through the idea of bearing a cross or through the idea of following after Christ when he calls his disciples initially. And here, Jesus, in teaching his disciples different aspects of what it means to be a disciple, he, he hits a lot of different parts of that description kind of in uh, a number of short verses here in the text. But I think it's fair to see all these as one job description for discipleship with, with just different details kind of brought out and then put together in the text here. The reason I think that is the best way to see it is, is because uh, without, without that structure, it wouldn't make much sense why he's telling this to his disciples now in the ministry or why Luke is recording it for us here in Luke's gospel. Uh, it seems that uh, this has little to do with anything else, except for uh, that it comes right before Jesus is really now turning and, and heading towards Jerusalem. It's coming right before a lot of that conflict is going to pick up on his way in. And, it's, and it comes right before he's going to begin to teach once again about the kingdom of God, which is a theme that has not come up in the Gospel of Luke, well, really since chapter 11. And so Luke is likely onboarding us for some of what it means to be in the kingdom of God by first onboarding us to what it means to be a disciple within the kingdom of God before he's then going to get on to that teaching. So in the text, it, it seems to make sense that that's, that's what's going on. But you don't have to take my word for it. I'm going to try to show you that out of the text uh, as we study it together. Uh, and with that, let's, let's keep this, this one kind of broad scope in mind. Uh, Jesus is, is our king. He, uh, he primarily re relates to us in the Gospels as disciples of him. And one of the things what that means is we must obey all aspects of what he says it means to be a disciple. We can't decide to opt out of part of the job description if it's part of the prerequisite of being a disciple. And so with that in mind, let's ask the question, well, what is it that he's teaching us in these verses today for us uh, in 2023? So with that, let's start to verse 1 of chapter 17 where he turns and says to his disciples that temptations to sin are certain to come. Temptations to sin are certain to come. Now, this idea is not just a broad commentary on 
you and I being tempted by our own desires in our heart or by circumstantial situations, uh, it, it, you, it actually has kind of the, the note or the emphasis or the, uh, the thrust of uh, an intentional temptation to cause someone else to stumble. It is not temptation in the broad sense of you, are, you desire something and a circumstance happens where you have opportunity to access that thing and now you're tempted. Uh, this, this has to do with someone who is causing temptation, who is causing an opportunity for stumbling in the life of a believer. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, just so you know, that kind of temptation is, is sure to come. Now that's different than what we all know to be true about temptation, which is that temptation assails us in this life almost on every front. Uh, uh, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. He's, he's saying that false teaching, uh, temptation via someone else causing you to stumble, that is certain to come. Now, this is a strange kind of thing to tell your disciples unless, unless you want them to be on the lookout and aware of it so that they can be guarded against being prone to such kind of temptation. So he says, these temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Woe to the person who is the, the vehicle for such temptations. Now, Jesus has just finished the discourse with the Pharisees. And so it is likely that now as he is turning back to his disciples to teach them once again, he is, he is discussing with them the need to be on guard against false teaching within his kingdom. Part of being a disciple means you have to know that there will be false teachers in the name of God who come around and, and try to tell you all different kinds of things about what it means to be a disciple. These temptations towards sin are, are sure to come, certain to come, but that doesn't mean that the person through whom they come uh, is somehow an approved teacher. We know this today. Almost anyone can get up with a Bible uh, or, or tell, say anything and they say, God says this or God doesn't say that is all that wrong. People say things like that all the time. Uh, with our culture in particular, uh, the, there are many people who profess, profess to be Christians, uh, who stand up in pulpits on Sunday or who, who minister throughout the week, who say things like, well, God's word doesn't say that. God doesn't teach that it's, it's only right for a man and a woman to be married. He's actually more, more open or more expansive than that. And that, that can cause real temptation for someone who struggles with same-sex attraction and is fighting that battle in the Christian life. And people sign off on a sin like that and say it's okay. And, and that is a real temptation, a real invitation to stumbling coming through someone proclaiming to be someone who is teaching on behalf of God. And, and that is a real kind of thing that can happen as a Christian. Similarly, uh, if you're the kind of uh, Christian who struggles with, with lust, there are many people who I've heard who, who teach something like uh, you can, it's okay to think certain thoughts or engage in some behaviors, but only these kinds of behaviors are off, off limits. And they make, they make room for uh, almost an open, flagrant engagement in lustful behavior or, or sin. And, and people who profess to teach Christian doctrine will do this kind of thing. Now that is uh, an assault on the church. And that happens all the time. And Jesus warns us about that kind of thing here in the text. He's telling his disciples that there are people who will teach falsely and you need to be on guard for people who will teach falsely in my name. These temptations will come. These opportunities for stumbling will come. But that doesn't mean the person through whom they come is, is off the hook. Now he says in verse two rather sharply, it would be better for him, this person who, through, who the temptations come through, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Here we see the burden of responsibility on someone who teaches the word of God 
and particularly the punishment for someone who falsely teaches the word of God and allows sin to enter into a Christian's walk. Jesus says, rather harshly, rather strongly, it would be better for that person just to drown in the bottom of the sea than for them to tempt one of my children towards sin, for them to create permission and opportunity for someone to engage in sin with almost a seal of approval upon them. God says in Isaiah, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. That is not talking to the world that says these people call good evil and evil good because the world doesn't know better. Isaiah is saying that to the teachers in Israel who tell the kings in Israel and the people of Israel, that's okay, God's on board with that, or you don't have to feel so bad about that kind of thing. That is who Isaiah is talking to, that's his audience. And, and similarly in the church, it, it's not really a problem for a Christian to be inoculated against what the world says, because we're, it's easy to recognize the world over there, they believe different things from us. It's a lot harder for a Christian to discern when someone comes in the name of Christ and then says, this thing is okay, you can engage in that kind of behavior. Or actually God doesn't teach that explicitly. And they create all kinds of room and margin for sin. That is a person who is strongly rebuked in scripture by God and who has a severe price to pay for their t sin temptations. Because there are many Christians, many true Christians who are led astray into all manner of sin and, and, and wickedness because of these kinds of false teachings, because of this kind of uh, inappropriate instruction. And it would be better for such a person to, as Jesus says, drown in the bottom of the sea than for them to cause even one person to stumble. Now that does not mean that the text gets the people who are victims of false teaching off the hook for their engagement in sin. Every Christian is responsible for their own actions, regardless of whether a Christian leader or teacher taught you that it was okay to do something. Every Christian is still responsible for their own activities, for their own actions, but they're not as responsible, as culpable as the false teacher who gave them permission to engage in sin. That does not mean though that as Christians we go unexamined through this life. This is one of the reasons why as a Christian you need to know the text of scripture and know what it teaches. So that when anyone comes around and says, I have a degree in seminary, I have a PhD, or I, I can teach you what the Bible really teaches on this thing, you need to be on guard that whatever follows next better actually concur with what scripture says, or else I'm not listening. Just because someone has credentials after the name doesn't mean they will teach faithfully in the name of Christ. It doesn't mean that that's the case at all. In fact, it is more often the case that the more degrees someone has, the less faithful they become over time. Especially in our, in our modern world where most of the universities and seminaries that are offering degrees in the public domain uh, are completely apostate, who deny the inerrancy of scripture and all, all manner of the teaching of God's word. But that doesn't mean you, Christian, are off the hook. If you listen to a false teacher, you believe what they say, and therefore you allow opportunity for sin to enter into your life. One of the greatest blights on the church, uh, particularly in the last 20 years with regards to this, has been the prosperity gospel preaching of the Western church, where a number of people get in pulpits and teach things like, if, if God has favor with you, and you don't have any sin to confess, if you tithe faithfully, if you do everything you should as a Christian, God will bless you immeasurably beyond your imagination. He will increase your wealth, he will increase your health, he will increase your relationships with people, he will give you career advancement in your job. Those things have been taught from pulpits in the Western church for decades now. And they haven't been taught by heretics. Well, they have later become heretics, but that starts with uh, a pastor or a leader who started out faithful somewhere, 
beginning to teach things to scratch the ears of people who wanted that to be true. And over time, that snowballs into this kind of uh, this, this vicious cycle where the people want to hear a certain kind of teaching and the teacher wants to be approved of by the people. And so they all teach whatever people are okay with and allow greed and, and pride and, and self and coveting, all of that to flourish as though that is what the gospel is and what, what the church ought to teach. Similarly, as I mentioned earlier, with, with sexual sin, this has be, become the snowball of probably the last five or 10 years within the church, where pastors from out of nowhere decide, actually, God's sexual ethic isn't quite what the church has always believed. It's actually a little bit more nuanced. It has more room for all manner of things. And it's right in line with what people actually want to be true in culture. And people will get, in pulp, get up in pulpits or join with churches that are affirming or approving of certain things in the culture. But just because you can get a pastor to say it doesn't make it true. And just because you have a host of people who call themselves Christians to follow it doesn't make it true. One of the things Jesus is teaching us here is that you ought to be on guard against such false teaching. Verse 3 says it very clearly. Pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. You, you can't worry about what everyone is teaching out there. You can worry what you listen to and what you are obedient to. So you should pay attention to yourself. As a, as a Christian, your solution to this isn't to start campaigns to cancel everyone who teaches falsely. Your solution is to inoculate yourself and those who you are responsible for from such things. Pay attention to yourself. Guard yourself. So that you do not become a victim of such wickedness. But he goes on. And now he's going to talk about, well, what if someone enters into sin? Uh, what is the responsibility of a Christian after that person becomes uh, aware of that sin? What, what happens if someone goes head over heels into such kind of false teaching, into such kind of sin? If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. One of the most difficult things to do in the Christian walk is to forgive people who have harmed you and sinned against you. It is the thing that is a job description of a disciple that often tells us much about our own heart posture towards, towards God and towards others. Struggling to forgive is often our own inability to see that we have been forgiven. And struggling to forgive is often our own inability or our own desire to not want to forgive people who have sinned against us. Sin is not some benign thing that exists out in the world where you have mildly offended someone. Sin strikes at the heart of human relationships, human interactions. It causes brokenness. It causes chaos. Sin is not some easy thing to pardon, not without the grace of God. And sin is a thing that Christians are called to cover with forgiveness when people ask for it. Now, you'll notice before Jesus says you ought to forgive someone, one, one step right before that is that confrontation precedes the forgiveness. Now, that, what, what this means is if someone is caught in sin, one of the things that a Christian ought to do is to call them out for the sin that they are caught in. One of the things you ought to do as a believer if you see someone caught in sin, caught in transgression, is you ought to pursue them for the sin that they are struggling in. You ought to pursue their heart, pursue their uh, theology, engage with them, and, and call them out and call them to repentance for sin. And that allows you to have an opportunity to forgive that person. It's not enough for you to persuade someone that they have engaged in sin, and then for them to repent 
uh, and then you turn around and say, I'm still upset with you. If you are going to call someone towards forgiveness, do so if you are willing to forgive them. If you're going to call someone to repentance as a Christian, it should be for the purpose of a restoration of relationship, a restoration of that kind of fellowship. One of the things that we struggle with in the West particularly is forgiveness because we live in a culture that exacts vengeance, not in the same way that we would have thousands of years ago by, by beheadings and, and killings and things like that. Uh, we exact vengeance uh, socially by not giving ourselves to people in relationship, by having severe judgments towards people who we, we have not really forgiven. Uh, we, we hold uh, vindictive, retributive, angry, bitter hearts towards people because we are slow to forgive people for sin. Sins of emotional uh, tightness, sin, sins that happen in a, in a very intimate emotional space, those are sins that in the West we struggle to forgive people for and often will hang on to for years and years and years, failing to reconcile relationship. These are sins which testify to our mark of being a disciple of Christ. If we refuse to forgive someone who has asked for forgiveness, that is sin. To refuse to forgive someone is to fall short of what God calls us to, short of what God compels us to do, and thus is itself sinful. We are to call someone to repentance and to forgive them, lest we also be guilty of sin. Now, with that all being said, because, because God compels us to forgiveness, it, it's important to, to say that forgiveness is not one-to-one -one the same thing as a full restoration of trust in a person. Forgiveness means you don't hold what they did against them. Forgiveness is not the same thing as, as wiping out any punishment that someone is owed. Let me give you an example from, from the real world, from, uh, from culture. Imagine there's a person who's a Christian who commits murder, and while they are on trial for the murder, they come to their senses, they feel convicted over what they did, and they ask for forgiveness. That person could duly and rightly be forgiven by the people who they assailed in that murder, by the people whom they offended. And yet, and yet, they ought to still be punished for the sin that they committed. Discipline can still be given to someone while forgiveness is given. Consider King David, who after committing a heinous act of murder and, and having an affair with Bathsheba, is forgiven by God, allowed to maintain his kingdom, maintain in the be in the throne, and nevertheless is disciplined for his act of wickedness. It is not as though God is not really forgiving David. God still covers his sins. But covering of sins is not the same thing as failing to discipline someone caught in transgression. Most notably in the church, uh, most notably in the church, this happens when pastors and teachers and, and elders are caught in decades-long affairs that they've had against their spouse. And they'll disappear from the pulpit for a number of months and then out of nowhere come back to the pulpit, restored to ministry as though everyone should trust them because they've been forgiven. That is a short understanding of what forgiven means. Forgiveness does not mean a full restoration of trust. It can, it can, but it does not require a full restoration of trust. If a husband struggles with sexual sin and he asks his wife over and over and over again for forgiveness, her forgiveness does not demand that she fully trusts him in every single situation immediately. It is not what forgiveness requires. Forgiveness can be owed and wrought with, while also taking safeguard and precaution. 
There is no sense in giving someone over to trusting someone if you know that they have a vice that assails them. That is not the same thing as forgiveness. And it's important to say that because forgiveness in scripture is required of someone, but often trust can take much longer to restore by God's grace. And sometimes, not even in this lifetime, but only in glory can trust be restored. One of the hardest examples of this, especially in the Western church, is the example of abuse, where a husband is abusive to a spouse, to their wife, and that wife can truly and genuinely forgive the husband for the sin that they have committed against them. And yet they might live apart for the rest of their lives because trust is not owed often in those kinds of situations. Trust can be restored by God's grace, certainly, but trust is not owed in the same way forgiveness is owed. Forgiveness, forgiveness is required. Trust can take time. It's important for you to know that because if God compels you to forgive, uh, I want you to know that doesn't mean he compels you to put yourself in situations to trust people who have told you over and over again not to trust them by their actions and by their sin. It's important that we are able to distinguish these things as Christians. But notice forgiveness is required often. If the brother sins against you seven times in a day, you ought to forgive them every single time they ask for forgiveness. C.S. Lewis, when, when commenting on, on this idea in the text, he even takes it to the, the point where he says, actually, if your brother asks you for forgiveness and you forgive them, and then two days later you think of the same sin and you feel angry about what they did again, you ought to forgive them again. Because part of what's entailed in Jesus' teaching here is that you not, you'd only forgive someone the moment they ask for forgiveness. You also forgive them every time you think of that same sin that they committed, you are, you are compelled to forgive them once again to not hold bitterness in your heart. It is a high calling for Christians, particularly because we live among sinners. We are married to sinners. We live in relationship with sinners. We go to church with sinners. We are all the way through going to be living this thing out. So part of the job description of a Christian is to forgive. It's part of the job description. It's part of what you need to know on the front end when you're signing up. It's something you need to know is going to be the full sum of your walk as a believer that you are required to forgive. And I don't think it's a shock that if all that is true, that the disciples respond to Jesus by saying, increase our faith. You might not always put these texts together because in the ESV, and I'm sure in many of your English translations, there's a break and even like a header in between these sections. But Jesus is teaching his disciples on forgiveness. And the very next thing that they do in responding to his teaching is they say, Lord, increase our faith. Give us more of faith. Because if what you're saying is true, if what you are requiring is real, surely we will need more faith than we currently have to complete such a task. And Jesus says to them, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus' point is not that if we are Christians and have faith that we can go commanding bushes around to jump in lakes and oceans and rivers. He's using a hyperbolic statement to illustrate to us what faith can accomplish. And this ought to be understood because in the church today, we think about faith as something that's on a sliding scale. You can have a little faith, you can have a medium amount of faith, you can have more faith, or you can have the most faith. And people with different faith capacities might be able to engage in their discipleship walk a little bit better. Sometimes, even mistakenly, we talk about people who aren't believers who believe in other kinds of things as someone who has great faith. So they have a lot of faith in their God, or they have a lot of faith in their belief system. There's someone with a lot of faith. 
Jesus is teaching here is essentially that the magnitude of your faith isn't actually a good measuring stick. You can have a tiny little amount of faith, faith like a mustard seed. The quality of faith is not determined by how much of it you have, if there were such a thing. The, the quality of your faith is determined on the, the object of your faith, what you actually believe in. You can have as much faith as you want in whatever it is that you want to have faith in, but if it's not real, if it's not true, if it's not reliable, if it's not beautiful, uh, it doesn't matter how much faith you have in that thing. God is real. Jesus is a true Lord, a true King. He does compel forgiveness. And so to have even the tiniest amount of faith that your obedience to his word will be vindicated and will be given grace to accomplish and he will give you his spirit to accomplish it, even a little amount of faith in that is worth it. Even a little amount of faith in that can accomplish a great deal. Because your faith is in Christ, the king of the universe, not in yourself and how much faith you have. Uh, we don't have faith in how much faith we have. We have faith in the God of the universe who compels us to do certain things and who also tells us he enables us to do certain things. Now at this moment, it's important that we stop because we've now talked about several things we ought to do as Christians. And without going on to the final thing which we ought to do as believers, I want to uh, take a moment to talk about why it is important that we understand our obedience is an outflow of what God has done and not meritorious of what God has done. When God calls the Israelites into the wilderness and gives them the Ten Commandments, he doesn't start with, have no other gods before me. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the household of Egypt, out of the household of slavery. Have no other gods before me. He first tells them what he has done, how he has worked, what he has accomplished. And then he turns and tells them, therefore do this. It is important for us to understand that because we get that backwards daily. It is our, our, our bent position, even as converted believers, is to twist that order around and think, when God tells us to do things, he tells us to do things so that he will like us more and so that we can merit favor before him. The human heart is prone to want to merit things. But God doesn't call us to these things because they're merits. God calls us to them because they're acts of obedience. What Jesus does in Luke's gospel chronologically happens after he teaches the disciples all these things. Now, Jesus has done a great many number of works, a great many miracles. He has given his disciples plenty of reason to trust his teaching at this point. But can we not look at these verses and this teaching with more appreciation as people who live post-cross, post-resurrection, and think about Luke compiling his gospel post all of these events happening, having recorded and heard and interviewed all these things, compiling this set of instructions and directions and thinking, how encouraged will these people be when they get to the end of the story and they realize that he compels us to do all these things out of what he has already accomplished for us. He compels us to forgive because God, through his divine plan of saving humans, chooses to forgive us by creating a means of forgiveness, by creating a path of righteousness, by meriting it all himself, and by turning to us and offering us a free pardon when we could offer him nothing. And then he tells us, so you can forgive others. But he doesn't do that in a vacuum and compels us to do things that he is not willing to do himself. He compels us to forgive because he sets the standard, the gold standard of what forgiveness looks like. Forgiveness when the world could offer God nothing was something that we could never have merited or deserved. And the gap between us and God's forgiveness 
is monumental. Because when you are forgiving someone who sinned against you, the odds are you've probably also sinned against them. There's probably all kinds of things going on in that situation which make it unlike God forgiving us. God who is perfect, holy, righteous, wise, who has given us every reason not to offend him, and yet we offend him anyway and sin against his holy law. That is so unlike human forgiveness, which operates on a much closer level between forgiver and forgivee. We are, we are so unlike God, and yet he sets the pattern for us, the gold standard of forgiveness, which, which in some sense uh, tells us that because of how we have been forgiven, there's nothing we can't forgive. And then he says, so you should forgive other people. It's an outflow of what we have to first understand God did for us through Christ Jesus. And only then, only then can we come at forgiveness with a right heart posture. When you see Christ on the cross, as you will in a number of chapters in Luke's gospel, and you see him there bleeding and dying and, and broken for the world to save his people unto himself, and you see yourself there in that place, it is so much easier when understanding that magnitude of forgiveness to turn around and to not vengefully engage in bitterness or hardness of heart or unforgiveness in someone who's done really a slight thing against you. Forgiveness is required of us because God sets the standard of forgiveness. And he gives us also the basis for faith. When the disciples turn and say to Jesus to increase our faith, uh, <laughs> they're asking him to do something only he can do. Uh, they ask him to do something which, which he is the sole provider for. The leopard can't change his spots. The Ethiopian can't change his sin, skin. Neither can you, O sinner, turn your wicked heart unto God. When, when you feel the burden of discipleship, as you should, when you feel the weight of what God calls you to do, to evangelize the world, to preach the good news, to forgive, when you wake up in the morning and you recognize that is the burden that you are called to every single day, how is that a light burden if, not, if it is not God who is moving to bring these things about? And the only fitting response when we are tasked with burdens of discipleship is to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, give us the strength. Give us the grace. Give me the patience. Give me the ability to forgive. In short, increase our faith. <laughs> give us the capacity to actually walk that thing out. Because when God requires us of something of us, uh, he also is the very source for the, the strength and the power to carry that thing out. As, as Augustine would say uh, in, a, in a prayer, uh, Lord, command whatever you will and grant the grace to do what you command. We need both. Not only what he tells us to do, but also his strength to carry it out. Uh, as, as I often love to say, uh, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is, as Paul says, God who wills and works in that whole process. It is a mysterious process, and yet God is the source of our goodness. God is the source of the grace which imbibes us. And that is very important to understand what happens in verse 7 through 10, when Jesus then turns and gives a hypothetical example of an obedient servant. He says, Will any of you, when having a slave plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come from the field, come, sit at once and recline at my table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards, uh, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that slave because he did what was commanded? 
So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done what was our duty. When you understand that it is God's grace that works in your life as a Christian to compel you to be obedient, to give you the grace to forgive, to give you obedience and desire to engage in all the activities that is required of a disciple. When you recognize that it is actually God being the source of those things, we recognize there is no possibility for us to merit anything before God at all. There is no bandwidth that we have to turn to God and say, look at how great I've done. Don't you owe me something? And that's important because for those of us who have walked out the Christian faith for a while, who have gotten good at the spiritual disciplines, who have gotten good at reading our Bibles, who have gotten good at prayer. The temptation and the tendency is to start to think about how good of a job we've done and start to think things like, well, isn't God lucky to have me on his team, in his kingdom, as his disciple, serving him? Uh, isn't, he, isn't he so blessed to have me on his side in this fight against evil? Aren't I just the greatest thing in the world that people, someone is so blessed to be discipled by me? We think about ourselves uh, often as though we have merited the things which God is making clear in the text, he grants to us. Uh, almost like the people of Israel when they are given all these blessings from God in the wilderness. They are established, they are put in place in the promised land, and they conclude at the end of that establishment, oh, it is my hand that fed me, it is I who gave the grain and the wine and the oil. But it's God who is the source of all the blessings for Israel, and it is God who is the source of all the blessings for the Christian walk. He is the source of every blessing in the church. The church should never get up and say to God, look how well we have done. Uh, because God is the one who did that thing in the life of the church. He is the one who brings about faith. He is the one who brings about influence. And all he requires of us is obedience in that front. And how could we then turn from his command what he requires and say, you owe me for what I have done. Obedience is our duty. That's what this parable makes clear. And there is no room for arrogance in that process. There is no room for us to turn around to God and be arrogant or flippant towards him and say he owes us something. The fitting response, the only response, is for us to turn to God and say, look at the text again in verse 10, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done what was our duty. This, is, this should be our heart posture when we are walking out of the Christian life and we are ever tempted to think that we have done a great thing that we did a great job by evangelizing or we have been particularly obedient to God's word, we should, we should have this phrase at the tip of our tongue to say, we are unworthy slaves. Now it's important for us to understand that many of the pictures in the text of scripture give us various aspects of our identity in, as, as Christians. Our identity as Christians is everything about who we are. Our identity tells us and informs us what we ought to do, who we are at our core. It tells us all kinds of things. But scripture, scripture cannot tell us perfectly who we are in God, but it can tell us sufficiently who we are in God. And we know this because the text of scripture uses many different ideas, illustrations, and parables to try to communicate to us how we relate to God. What is our relationship to him? This text tells us that we are slaves before God. But that is not the full scope of what it means to be before God because as we learn in the parable of the prodigal son, we are sons of the king. Now that is, that is good language, descriptive language, sufficient language, but not exhaustive language because we are, we are, while we are sons of the king, we are also slaves to the king. 
And as you think about the broad scope of the New Testament testimony, we are also the bride of the king. There's a whole host of pictures which serve to describe how the church and how Christians relate to Christ, how we relate to our Lord and Savior. And it's important for us to always hold these in tension with one another. We want to be sensitive to the press of the text that we are slaves of Christ. As Paul often introduces himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, slave of God. He, he thinks that is a great way to describe himself, and he's right. But just as much as we are slaves of Christ, we are also sons, we are also heirs, we are also engrafted into his family as adopted children. Uh, we are also his beloved affection. Uh, we are also his, his delight. Uh, we are also his bride. And we ought to hold all these in tension because to lose any one aspect of that description would be to, to lose definition. If you think about a television, losing, losing parts of what it means for that television to be high definition, losing aspects in pixels, you don't, you don't, you don't immediately lose the picture. If you've ever uh, been on YouTube and you can, you can scale the video down from all the super high definition all the way down to the lowest definition, 420p, so you can, you can run it on very poor Wi-Fi. You don't lose the picture. But the picture gets increasingly blurrier the more descriptors you drop. The more detail you drop, the blurrier the picture gets. What God provides us in the corpus of scripture is a high definition picture of what it means to be a disciple. Now we can overemphasize aspects of that without actually losing or distorting the picture, but I would encourage us not to do that because of all the rich detail he gives us in the text. He tells us we relate to him as sons, but he just as keenly tells us we relate to him as slaves. A son has a, has a higher position in the household than a slave. So which is it? Are we sons or are we slaves? Well, this text is telling us, particularly as it relates to our obedience, we ought to think about ourselves as slaves when it comes to obedience. But when it comes to our position as forgiven, as the parable of the prodigal son tells us, we ought to think about ourselves as sons of the king, sons of the master, because that rightly describes our position as forgiven people. My point is, as the New Testament describes our relationship, it uses analogical language, language that paints a picture for us, and it ought not to be pressed too far into its exhaustion. Because we really don't serve Christ as a slave in the, in the way that we would be tempted to press that picture today. We are not unwillingly obedient to God. We obey him out of a joyful and charitable heart, which is, which is different than what comes up in your and my mind when we think about slavery, which is unwilling, bitter service, compelled harshly. That is not how God calls us to serve. And that would be a lot closer to the New Testament understanding of what a slave is because a slave there is more like a worker, one who does their duty, one who does what is required of them, but who is in a voluntary relationship with this master. Now, that doesn't mean the master doesn't own them and, and, and have right over them. That still is an aspect of slavery, but it's not an exhaustive look at what it means to be in relationship with God. So whenever we read these descriptors, we ought to read all of them in tension with one another. Now, by putting all of this in front of you, all of these different quirks or, or facets of what it means to be a disciple, I want to provide you with a high-definition look of all of what's required of you as a disciple of Christ. Because for each of us, these things are required. These are not things that one of us is required to forgive, another one of us is required to be faithful, another one of us is required to do this or that. As, as marks of discipleship, all of these are required from, from all of us. So as you read these descriptors of being a disciple, you recognize he's now coloring in what it means for us to carry our cross. Back in Luke 9.23, he tells us, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He's told us that we ought to not love anyone with a higher affection than we love God. He is to be our highest source of affection. We ought not to have anything else as our sole source of 
of desire because, because God is the one who, who actually ought to be the sole focus of our desire. He, we ought to not have anything else that we are serving. We can't serve both God and money, so you serve God. Now, as he fleshes this out even more, he's telling us, and what that requires is forgiveness. It requires faith. It requires obedience. And it requires, in some sense, endurance so that we are not tempted by the deceits of this world, by the deceits of false teachers in the, in the Christian walk. That picture of discipleship uh, helps you and I to be informed what is required of us. We serve a God who tells us what is required of him, uh, or what, what he requires of us. This is, uh, you might not know this, this is a, a beautiful and expansive and loving thing for God to do to tell us exactly what he requires of us. In the, in the ancient world, uh, you, might, you might think about the, the time Elijah squares off against the prophets of Baal. You remember something about that interaction. Elijah knows exactly what it's going to take to get God to act. And the prophets of Baal have no clue what it's going to take to get Baal to move. Because they have no idea what Baal requires. They have no idea what Baal wants. They have no idea what Baal even likes. How, what they do is they guess and check. If, if it's going well for them, they feel that Baal is favorable towards them. If it's not going well for them, they think they need to do more, to sacrifice more, to cut themselves more. Christian, that is not what God is like with you. If, if something's not going well in your life, you don't have to sit there and think, what did I do wrong and, and all this stuff, and then begin to uh, abuse yourself before God, thinking somehow to curry favor with him. He tells you exactly what he requires of you. And so then when you screw up, he all, you also know exactly where that happened. You can read his word. You can see for yourself he's told you ahead of time what he requires. Now, that is a loving thing for him to do because we always know where the line is. We always know where the standard is. And that, that's, that's wonderful. Uh, people will talk about this uh, in marriage all the time. Uh, one, of the great, one of the great ways to alleviate conflict in a marriage is to be on the same page, to have good communication and clear expectations. If you don't want to have conflict, you have to have clear expectations between one another. Well, God doesn't want conflict with his people. He clearly tells us what he expects of us. He, he doesn't have some arbitrary line that we're trying to always run after and be obedient to. He tells us clearly what he expects. And that clear communication is a loving thing to do. Just as you would lovingly tell someone what you expect of them in a relationship, God tells us lovingly what he requires of us in his relationship with us. But remember, he doesn't just tell us what to do. He, he first tells us, uh, well, what he has done, what he is, who he is. And that is really the, the broader uh, background and, and scope of this text. Now, with all that, uh, there's one final note uh, here in the text, and it, it's, a, it's a rather brief one which is that as we look at this list of what it means to be a disciple, one of the things we are encouraged by, I hope, is that everything we walk through, all the difficulties we walk through, are things that God expected us to struggle with because he teaches us about them. Consider that when he teaches us about false teachers who are going to come into the Christian church and teach them falsely, and he warns his disciples to pay attention, he does so because he's not gonna be surprised when that kind of thing happens. And we shouldn't wor worry, oh no, is God out of control when these kinds of things happen? He tells us ahead of time, that kind of temptation, that will come. Don't be surprised by it. I'm actually telling you ahead of time so you're aware of it. He tells us also, knowing that we're going to struggle with forgiveness, that we ought to forgive. He tells us that because he knows that we won't be in our natural state desiring to forgive. He knows we're weak in our flesh and we will struggle to do so. So he lovingly tells us to do so. He, he, knows, he knows that we require more faith. And so he encourages us and says, even with a little faith, you can accomplish much. And he knows that we will be prone to arrogance by obedient service towards him. And so he lovingly tells us, don't think of yourself highly in, an, in a boastful way. Think of yourself as a servant, as a slave of the king. This is the appropriate way to think about yourself. All of that, Christian, is loving towards you. So you know when you are tempted to not be obedient to these things, 
God knows your frame. He, he knows where you are weak. He knows where you falter. And he has told you ahead of time, he's aware of all these things so that you are encouraged to seek his face and repent and once again ask him for grace to walk this thing out because he's not going to be surprised by any of your shortcomings. He's not going to be surprised by any of your failures. 2,000 years ago, he tells his disciples in that day, they will be weak, they will be prone to arrogance, they will be prone to this kind of thing. And, and that's an encouragement because in 2,000 years, humans haven't changed very much. Humans still struggle with all of the same things. We still struggle with all of the same frailties. And our God is still the same God who assuages our fears, who invites us in and forgives us of every sin which we have against him. And with that, let us pray. Our God, we thank you for your text. We thank you for the grace which is evident on these pages, how you lovingly look to your people and you give us words of encouragement, comfort, strength. You lovingly give us all things which we require through the grace of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for the example of Christ, for the example of the cross, which tells us exactly what forgiveness means and what it looks like. And we thank you, Lord, that you have not given us that as a one-time picture, but you regularly remind us of that glorious moment by the preaching of your word, by the reading of it, uh, even encouraging our hearts secretly by the power of your spirit, that we are always brought to the focus and vision of your love for us. And out of that, we are compelled to, to love. Lord, we ask for your grace as we carry this out, knowing that we will fall short in obedience. And Lord, asking for your grace, that as we do, you would be gracious to forgive us of our sins, cleanse us of our iniquities, and enliven us and pick us up and help us to walk this Christian life out. We pray this in your name. Amen.